0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in I'm Sean clever your host, and with me today are your co-hosts, Caleb Wells. Hey y'all. Hey y'all. Yeah. Y'all. y'all. What's up? Oh, that's Southern, man. <laughs> <laughs> you're not as you're not as Southern as Y. So how you doing, Y?
1: Right. Good right. eye. Yeah, I know.
2: <laughs> yep. It's G'day. a whole different kind of Southern. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh we've got a we got, a, I think, an interesting episode today. Uh, it's actually something I'm not that familiar with. So our guest is uh, our guest is Derek Co Martin. Hi Derek,
3: how's it going?
0: Hey, good. Thanks good. for coming on the show. Appreciate it. So our topic today, CQRS.
3: It is CQRS.
4: Command, command Query Responsibility Segregation. Wow, it's mouthful. Mm. Do you want to improve the quality of your source code? There's a great solution, a static code analyzer. PBS Studio is a tool designed to detect errors and potential vulnerabilities in the source code programs written in C, C++, C Sharp, and Java. The analyzer can be used on Windows, Linux, and macOS. PBS Studio performs static code analysis and generates a report that helps a programmer find and fix bugs. It performs a wide range of code checks and is also useful in finding misprints and copy-paste errors. There's a good opportunity to get a month-free trial and save your project from bugs. Follow the link in the bio, download PBS Studio for free at devchat.tv slash PBS, and use the promo code ADV.net, A-D-V-D-O-T-N-E-T.
2: We'd like you to tell us a little bit about yourself, but I'm, I'm familiar with this, but every time I look at it, I'm like, that looks too complex. So can you tell us about yourself and then tell me why it's not, complex.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I am a developer for a startup. I don't even know if you'd consider us a startup anymore. Mm. Um, in Canada, we write transportation software. Before that, we're just a small team. We're all remote. So this COVID-19 situation hasn't drastically changed our workflow, really. So it's good. It's still challenging, obviously, with everything going on. But So we're all remote. But prior to that, I used to work for just a variety of in different domains industries. Um, That's kind of, I guess, how I picked up on maybe CQRS and other uh, types of patterns or ways of working in business domains. And that's really kind of Mm -hmm. how I got involved in just interested in domain-driven design and things that kind of been stepping stones that I think for a lot of people that got into uh, domain-driven design was things like CQRS and event sourcing. So I've been in, yeah, never been into game development, never been into any of those it's always been kind of line of business type apps for either when I was working for a consulting firm for external customers or like now, or it's kind of a SaaS service. So,
2: you know, it's it's the same for all of us. Why works for government in Australia. And Sean and I have spent most of our time doing right business apps or apps for schools or, uh, you know, research or whatever. So, yeah, we're, we're in the same, same, uh, same bucket.
3: Yeah, so it's, it's funny that you say when you look at it, it's, it seems complicated. And mm-hmm. that is probably the the first thing I hear almost every time is that's complicated or we don't need to do that. It's, it's overcomplicating things. But it, I, I think the reason that is, is like so many things in our industry, things start off one way. And people either interpret them wrong or then start, I guess, talking about, you know, I mean, using the same term, but in meaning something different. And I think that's probably happened a little bit with Seeker S. I mean, that's happened with pretty much everything I can think of. The biggest culprit to me is rest. Like, I don't think, I think people are generally referring to HTPIs when they say rest, but don't really mean rest. Uh, I just think there's a lot of terms like that we could say, like, I always, I have a talk where I'm talking with service boundary and I say, what's a service? Everybody's definition of that would probably be different now. Like, there's, I don't think there's any clear cut definition of what that is. I think that kind of happened to CQRS a little bit, which is if you probably search it, one of the, uh, if you like look at Google images or et cetera, you'll probably find a diagram that has all these boxes and arrows, right? That some of these boxes and arrows will be a, usually will contain a service bus, an event store, a separate read model. And a separate bus on the read side, and then people you start using the words like eventual consistency and all these all these things. When really, mm-hmm. that is uh, not it. Really, I mean it. That usually is a part of it, but not it entirely. So, at its simplest form, CQRS is really just an extension of CQS, which is command query separation. And all that really meant was that was from Bertrand Meyer, and all it really is is. If you have a method, it either mutates state or it returns a value and doesn't mutate state. That's okay. it. That's, that's it, right? So if you have a method called do some work, it mutates state, probably does some, perform some action, uh, and it doesn't return anything. And then conversely, if you have, I mean, get price or whatever the method may be, it's just going to return you that value, and it's mm-hmm. not going to. It's going to have zero side effects. Nothing else is going to change. It's completely safe to call. So that's really CQS. CQRS takes it just a step further, which was from Greg Young, which is just taking that to a class level. And the way that this is most times implemented, really, is through most people. The way people see this, really, in examples, is really related to messaging. So thinking of messages as kind of invocations of things so it's really cqrs is just as simple as separating reads and writes that's it
1: so is it is it similar? to i um, mean maybe patterns such as like redux and the whole
3: few of um functions type philosophy i guess in a way yes i guess you could somewhat relate it and i've seen posts that try because there's terminology that that's a mix mash there that represent the hmm. exact same things But the idea being is just like, take away all that stuff, take away comparing it to anything else. It's really just having two paths, one path for changing state, one path for getting state and making those completely distinct.
2: How does that, how would you get that to work with an interior application? You know, all right. I think a lot of us are used to doing a business layer and a data layer and, you know, a view layer, right? How does... How do you factor CQRS into that?
3: Well, I think it changed. I mean, for me, once I really got into it, it changed the way that I completely wrote apps. So when you're talking about kind of that layered approach Mm -hmm. and whatever your layers may be, right? Like just the ones you described or however people want to layer things. um, Usually those layers are like app wide, right? So you'll maybe have, uh, like you said, say there's some, data access layer, that's probably some layer or some project, however you want to organize it, that is used across your application, right? Like everything ultimately uses it. And then subsequently, like same thing with uh, your business logic layer, and then one calls the other, and it goes all the way to the database. The difference when you start getting into CQRS is that you're more times thinking about the C part, the command part, ends up being, you start thinking more about the intent of what you're trying to do. What's the actual action that you're trying to perform within the system? Like what is a user actually trying to do? And sometimes those are, they could just be purely CRUD based, but more often than not, if you really start digging around with what you're trying to do, those are well-defined things that our users are trying to do, right? Like an example of this would be, I'm in the tro- uh, transportation industry. So when a truck it drives up To your house to deliver your Amazon Prime package, right? When they do something and they physically drop that package off, that's a delivery. Like that's a command I'm delivering. Delivering is the command. I'm delivering this. It's not a update some date time in a record somewhere to set the delivery time, right? Like there's no, there's a specific action related to that. So when you start thinking about commands and actions as intent of a user wanting to do something, you start building your apps in more of a vertical way, in terms of actions and features, rather than you do start thinking like what you're referring to as layers. So you get away from necessarily having application-wide layers, and you start thinking of having vertical slices of features.
0: That's good, good. Uh, Cause you know, when you first defined it, I was thinking in my mind, you know, how is this different than just crud? But you're saying it's a higher level thinking, of of that, not so low level basic of just insert, update, delete, create. It's 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 higher than that.
3: Yeah, it's really getting into yeah, intent. And when you start doing that, it permeates everything. It's it's kind of viral in a sense because then your UI starts having to do that. So now your UI isn't this cruddy form, right? Like I said, maybe there's some field that you have to specify some date time. Now it's it's more task based. About what's a user's task, what's the workflow? And those, obviously, those like that task based UI ultimately then is what you're invoking commands for or queries to fetch that data back after the fact for like what you want to display to users, et cetera. So with CQRS, are there like
1: frameworks that help you implement this or is this more just a software pattern that um, you follow?
3: Yeah, I would say it's more of a pattern that you follow. You don't, you absolutely don't need a framework at all. There will be libraries that will help you do it kind of in a standardized way the easily the most popular is mediator from jimmy bogart so it does exactly what i'm talking about you can and it's all in process it's really simple like it's not there's nothing that are using there's no queues there's no service bus it's just it allows you to create request objects that you then pass to the mediator and then subsequently the mediator library then invokes a handler that handles that message, that handles that request. So you think of your request really just is it contains, it's kind of the command pattern. You have a an object that contains all the properties that really you could think of them as method uh, parameters. And when you send it to the mediator, mediator basically constructs the right um, handler for it, which is just a class that handles that method, method or message. And then in just invokes it, basically. Where this is probably the most used, I think, the mediator library in particular is in web apps. It's where I've seen it used the most, but it's not, it could be used anywhere, really. That's similar to like the NGRX type pattern? No. So it's not like, it'd be more of, for example, if you're thinking about ASP.NET MVC and you have a controller action, instead of putting pretty much anything in the controller action, really what you'd be doing is immediately calling the mediator. So you're basically constructing a request. And let's say, excuse an example here, let's say you were typical e-commerce example. So you were adding something to your shopping cart, right? You're adding a product to your shopping cart. So you have some controller, you have some route. When that route executes, basically that action, all you're really going to do is construct a new object called add item to cart with maybe the card ID and the product ID that you're adding to it. And then you're passing that object to the mediator. Then the mediator is doing all the work behind the scenes. The benefit there is that your code, like your application code has no reliance anymore on ASP.NET. It has nothing to do with ASP.NET, And there's a bunch of benefits there, which is primarily couplings. Now you're not coupling to a framework per se. You just have your code is your code, right? Like you have no reference to HTTP context None of that. Like you're just, you're segregating your code out and you're letting mediator kind of pass that along and it understands on how to you know make that invocation. So yeah, you are kind of dependent on mediator, but the beauty of it, if you go on GitHub and look at it, it's, I wouldn't say it's trivial, but it's not very, it's not a huge dependency in my mind. It's pretty straightforward on how it works. So it's really great for kind of decoupling, how I determine it's decoupling between boundaries. Right? you have your app you want your app to be your app and you want a, your framework code to be framework code, right like that's kind of the input is asp net, for example and then you just basically pass it off so you're doing with your code
0: kind of like openid connect kind of thing you're passing off the responsibilities of authentication and authorization off to somebody mm-hmm. else and then they well yeah I
3: mean yeah. ultimately it gets back to your code right um right. but but yeah, it's to me i the way I always say it is, it depends on the app that you have too, right? It, like if your app's not, again, my context here is I'm usually making apps that are fairly large, like these yeah. are long lived, right. five year old project that I'm working in. Um, yeah. They're not small by any stretch. So the benefit for us with doing something like this right from the beginning was when we started this project, we were in the pre .NET Core days. It, this was all in Project K, ASP.NET Five or whatever the heck it was. DNX kind of mode of thing, whatever.
2: DNX, yeah. Yeah.
3: So yeah. we kind of, and then at that time, right, you had Katana and Owen, which was really the precursor to ASPNet. So we kind of seen the writing on the wall where, okay, this is where this is going, and we don't see a future and where ASPNet was. There's this new thing coming. So because we were using this, it allowed us to migrate from ASPNet, like on the regular one, to ASPNet Core fairly simply. And then in that transition, we actually moved from using Web API to Nancy. Mm-hmm which is now deceased, but still. <laughs> but the fact is, because we have no reliance, we had really no j- drastic reliance on the actual framework. Like our code is s- totally segregated from ASP.NET.
2: My team is in the process of developing an app from scratch. We actually just finished up a new application, took two and a half years, and we're, we're doing a new one and we're figuring out which patterns are going to suit us best, right? And of course, you're going to have, for us, right, you're going to have controller of, of some sort. We use an Angular for the front end, but a controller of some sort for the APIs or whatnot. But we usually use services and repositories, that kind of layering. Um, what you're suggesting is the controllers are only going to handle the things that that have to do with HTTP or the, or the view piece of it, right? That's and you're not going to use services or repositories at all.
3: Well, you can. So that's the thing, right? Another analogy for this, though, when I was talking about layers is Mm -hmm. when we think of like a layered architecture, like application-wide, just think of a layered piece of cake. What I'm saying is once you kind of get into this vertical mode is you still kind of have the cake, but instead cut a piece out. So that piece is that vertical slice within that piece you can have your layers, right? So you can use, like, there's still going to be shared responsibilities. Like, you may have a repository or different services that you use. But the thing, what happens with this is that because you're developing in features, and a feature could just be, like, one command or one query, is that now that individual mm-hmm. command or query defines, it, it defines its own dependencies, So an example of this is, let's say you're using Entity Framework and your team's like, okay, we want to move to Entity Framework Core. There's nothing stopping you from doing that one feature at a time. Gotcha. Right? Like you're not changing a whole data access layer to re-implement, like you're not saying, okay, we're going into the data access layer, we're changing this dependency and it's going to affect everything. And it's this big bang. And we'll figure out what
2: breaks and and fix it one at a time.
3: Yeah, you're basically, you can migrate things one feature at a time. So that's one of the benefits is basically just each feature owning their dependencies and defining what those dependencies are. And then, yeah, within them, you're still going to have layering within that. So for example, like you may do some validation, authorization, you have some execution, maybe you have some logging, whatever the case may be, but all that's defined within that kind of one particular vertical request, like that one feature.
0: Reminds me of one of the applications that I've worked on where it's it's a mash of web forms, MVC, API, Web API, Angular, Entity Framework, and super Client all in one project. Yeah, each one has its own responsibilities, and as I can, I migrate things to newer technologies that over time
3: yeah that's the thing right like it's it can without being i guess diligent and if you are going to move stuff then you end up in this weird place potentially i mean there's always trade-offs here right so you got this trade-off of hey i can move everything one at a time but then if you don't do it (laughs) then (laughs) you're in this world of yeah i mean you got all these things going on yeah Um, lots of
0: technical debt
3: yeah. yeah and then so you're you're trying to move stuff forward but at the same time, depending on what the size of your app is, would you rather be in a world like in a situation where you can slowly maybe make new stuff, like implement new features completely separ- segregated completely versus interweaved into this uh, existing code? Because that's the biggest advantage is when you're dealing kind of in this vertical mode, especially how you organize the files the same way. Um, like your source code, is when we're like when our team's working, we're saying, okay, we got to go update, you know, I mean, this particular functionality, generally, it's touching one file. And that file pertains to everything to do with that particular action. So it contains maybe the, the command itself, the handler, there's usually multiple handlers, it's kind of like a pipeline. So it's Doing logging, whatever the case may be, and it's all usually segregated within one particular file. So it's not like you're jumping around from the data access project to the business logic layer project to some models folder project, wherever the case may be. You're really confined into one particular place.
2: I was going to ask, so you're you're not you're you're not using the idea of view models and entity models as separate files then anymore?
3: So, like something like if you were using an ORM and you have mm-hmm. like a product, customer, whatever entity that's using against entity framework. Yeah, that's going to be shared. So you will, that okay. will be something that be shared across features. Uh, but for the most part, besides that, you're really kind of segregated into one particular spot.
0: In that project, I was I was thinking about, you know, I'm blocked. I can't get to .NET Core with, with web forms. So I, I can't make that upgrade within it. So I was going to make another application pool within IIS, make that a .NET Core, and then share the data layer and authentication between the two pools. So that would be, you know, one part of it that gets moved to .NET Core, that would be its own vertical slice, but still have some legacy stuff that's still over in Web Forms and NBC and Angular and things like that, that over time, I'll
3: move one piece at a time. Pretty much. Yeah, that's and that's what I think kind of <laughs> gets overlooked because, again, for us, being able to to slowly keep with the pace of .NET in its entirety and now .NET Core and .NET 5, I don't know what we would be doing <laughs> with, <laughs> with with the size of that, what the app is right now and being able to, because our migration to being able to run on .NET Core wasn't a quick process, but it was a slowly picking away at things that enabled us to do this. So, like I said, being able to, I mean, use, obviously there's a lot of dependencies that you need to potentially migrate to with you depending on what you're using, so you need a little bit of luck there, but yeah, it's just being able to decouple stuff so that you can deal with it independently. And if you can't move it, you can't move it. Or it might be really a real challenge to do it, but that doesn't hold everything back.
2: So it sounds like this would be a good pattern uh over the work world with microservices.
3: Yeah. So I guess where that lies then is it's certain. it's taking the concept of what we're talking about of really vertical feature slices and how you want to group them and what you define as like we were saying earlier, like a service, what's a service? So a service to me, right. I guess, to define that a little bit is I view it as a it's a boundary. It owns certain business capabilities. It owns a set of, yeah, it owns a set of business capabilities. I don't think there's necessarily a size to that per se. Like it's, I don't think there's any formula to say, oh, that's too big or too small. It's really about business capabilities of what it needs to own. But having said that, it's really just, yeah, it's those, it's those features. It's those capabilities. So once you do start getting into thinking about vertical slices, then yeah, if you're thinking about services, microservices, you're not thinking about it technically you're thinking about it in terms of capabilities, which I think is kind of the biggest, to me confused part about microservices and services is there's so much focus on the technical aspect to it. When That's I think right. it's generally more about, it should be more focused towards capabilities. Like what is it actually trying to do?
2: This this question may may take us off the rails or may be a little involved, but I'm curious to get your your viewpoint on this. It's your, your well-versed and secure us. in in the app we finished, last year. One of the things we decided to do was, right, we wanted to keep our controllers as slim as possible. We wanted to handle all of our um, business logic and validation and model state inside the service. So we're actually passing the model state from the controller into the service and we can trigger it based on you know complex validation depending on where we're at, right? And then we pass that up or we can actually do the you know model state is valid inside the service and then pass the errors up to the controller, right? So it stays there. I'm assuming that wouldn't work with CQRS. How 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 are y'all? How is your team handling something something like that? Handling model state validation.
3: Well, what you're I guess it's not really. If you're again, if you're taking the request and just passing it mm-hmm. up to some other layer, but still using the model state, which is really still from MBC, right? right? So it I is. mean, you still have yep. that dependency. So yep. it's still something from MBC. Right. but that's not really anything to do necessarily with CQRS. That's a problem. That's just like whether you want that. Coupling. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll right? just, so, um, but just that, like the idea of a request coming in,
2: right? So if the model that you pass into a command is is not valid in some some reason you would just you would create your own validation error and let it
3: bubble up correct yep is that correct yep yeah so and then there's some there's some really cool middleware can't remember exactly what all of them are called but christian has one called i don't even know exactly what the prep like the the nuget package is called but ultimately you can map different results or different exceptions Mm -hmm. to different problem json outputs and it's really configurable and customizable. So basically you're, again, when we say about like segregating your app, your app's not really aware of like HTTP responses or anything, right? You kind of define what your validation errors are and then let middleware and configuring that middleware determine how you want to respond with that back to the client.
2: Uh, we were using fluent validation and okay. it was actually handling all of that and triggering the validation, we were just piggyback on on model state because uh we didn't have to create our own is valid stuff in that yeah. case. But I can see I, I can I, I can absolutely see where you can can separate the two uh
1: fairly easily. So if all this Experience. talk of like decoupling and things like that, would it would this pass in like make- unit testing a lot easier or is there a certain way to do it to me it does
3: (laughs) the reason (laughs) i say that is because i mean i guess it depends how you implement it oh yeah it like anything i think it just depends what your implementation is so for us what that looks like are writing tests that usually what a handle so a command will just be an object and there'll be one handler class Mm -hmm. that will handle that object from Mediator, for example, or whatever the dispatcher is. And so most of the time, what our handlers look like are they have a constructor, which take X number of dependencies to do whatever they need to do. And then one method called handle that takes the request that came in from Mediator and does whatever it needs to do. So generally our tests are fairly straightforward because we're just testing one handler for the most part. Like every test is test this handler, whatever it's supposed to do, it does. I'll jump back a little bit where I mentioned like layers. Is the real benefit of using something like mediator, or, and there's other things that you can use. I'll give a throw out there to some other libraries. One is brighter, so there's brighter command, which does a similar type thing. It's a little bit more advanced in the sense that it can use, it can be done using stuff out of process. So you can put commands to queues and for example but it can do everything in line too and the cool thing about this and mediator does this as well is you can essentially create a pipeline for a request so what that means is when i was talking about layers you can have essentially different a request go through different handlers the easiest example of this is with asp.net core in middleware you have a request come in and it goes through middleware and middleware just calls the next piece of middleware right? That's the pipeline of a request. So you can do the same thing with Meteor, where maybe the first uh, handler that comes in, maybe you want to do some validation. So that thing is specifically only doing validation on the request. So maybe it's looking at the property saying, okay, is the model itself correct? Maybe I need to do some database lookups or something else specifically to make sure this requests coming in my my state in the database is actually what it should be to actually even perform this action. So that may be a handler that's validation. And if that passes, it goes to the next one, which may be your actual execution, which changes the state. And then maybe from there, subsequently, you have another handler that is the last one in the pipe that is logging. A request, something like that, right? Or maybe it sends out an email. Who knows what it does after the fact? So there's kind of like this pipeline that you can create with requests. And that's how you can kind of implement, I guess, separating the concerns of what the request does. So it's not like you have just one handler that does all this stuff. So when you get back to testing, you're testing a very narrowed class, right? That has a limited number of dependencies and that it
4: does very something very specific. Do you ever have trouble just getting into the flow? You find that your tool is great? like Visual Studio, but you could just get more out of it or get some stuff out of your way or have it give you better feedback that you would be able to get into flow easier. Well, let me tell you about Code Rush. Code Rush actually solves this problem for you. So the first thing that it does is it actually gives you a visualizer on the way that the code is set up and it actually helps you debug stuff in an intuitive way that makes it easy for you to figure out what's going on. This really helps me stay in the flow when I'm trying to write code. Another thing that it does is it has a whole bunch of navigation options that you can get used to. Now, this is something that I figured out with Emacs was something that I really got into. So when I started using Emacs, just the key bindings and, and kind of the natural flow of things made me a much, much more efficient programmer. And the quick navigation in code Rush is awesome awesome. You should definitely try it out. They have code analysis. So they'll pick out some of the issues, maybe for complexity or diagnose some other code issues that'll point out code smells. It'll help you refactor your code. So the code analysis is another thing where I don't have to actually go in and sit down and think, okay, have I made any mistakes in this code? Because it actually highlights them. And finally, it just validates like your code coverage and all of the other things that you're trying to look at and gives you real numbers and real feedback on the quality of your coding and the quality of your tests, so go check out Code Rush. You can get it at devexpress.com/products/code rush, or just go to devchat.tv/code rush, and it'll send you to the right place. Once again, that's devchat.tv/code rush.
1: So you test each of these things in the pipeline, and then maybe you'd write like an integration test that would test all sure. of them once.
4: Yeah,
3: yeah, for sure. We test them all um, individually, for sure. And then we do do some that are going end-to-end, basically.
0: So the handlers, do they know what to do based upon the type of objects that are getting passed to them or a property on it? Or do you have you pass it to a different handler depending on what you need to
3: do? Yeah, so when you are, for example, you'll have a class called, you'll create a class called add item to cart, right? And like I said, it will have a property on it called product ID and cart ID maybe. And then you'll have a subsequent class that will be called the, add item to cart handler and it will in implement for example in the case of um, mediator it will implement a i request handler and that takes a type of t and that t is your add item to cart uh, class so that handle method will be an instance when an, when it execute mediator executes it of that object that will have the cart id and the product id that you're working with so again you can think of that object as really as the parameters to what you would normally write if you had some other class that was like your shopping cart class and it had a add to cart method with those parameters on it. It's just basically, you're now making objects messages be kind of the, the way to invoke your functionality rather than knowing about the class that you need to call and actually implementing that method call specifically to it. You're totally unaware. Like, so from the controller, you're totally unaware of the handler. You just only know about the, the object that you're creating. That is the request.
0: All right. So you have an add item to art, I add item to cart object instead of just an item in cart object and have a uh an action property on it called add so do it by the object type and detect that okay makes sense
2: how does this impact the code you write? Not necessarily from a feature perspective or the, or the vertical slices, but you know, one of the things that comes up for me is uh, dry, you know, don't repeat yourself. How, do you, right, how are you taking these features and, and making them small enough to where they're usable and understandable without having duplication across multiple commands?
3: Yeah, I hear that one a lot too. Uh, the, my my usual question to that, or answer to it is, I think there's this tendency to, once you go into this mode, to think that you only have handlers and you right. only have commands, while you still can have, I mean, classes that represent shared functionality. So gotcha. if you need to, for example, fetch a particular object a certain way, and that needs to be done in... 10 different places, then by all means, create something that's going to represent that to get I mean, use that around and use that as a dependency in your handlers. But I would also caveat this with the thing. And again, this is my experience. This is certainly not everyone in every app people have lived in. But I would I often am curious Ask people go into if you are working in a layered approach, go into your data access layer. And turn on code lens or whatever the heck it's called in Visual Studio or Rider, or VS Code, wherever you use, that shows you the number of references that you have to a method. And over time, at least what I've experienced is, especially with data access, is because, like, say, in a, a, some controller action, it needs to fetch data a very specific way that people will end up writing a method in some repository somewhere that does that exact query that they need in a very specific way that's not used anywhere else. And you end up with all these methods that have one reference and only referenced in one place, right? And then from there, what I've experienced, and I've probably written myself, (laughs) is then somebody creates a method that takes an insane amount of arguments or some way to construct the the predicate of what the, the query actually should be and you pretty much just like re-implemented link. <laughs> right? Like, so that's gotcha. generally where it goes to. So when you mention like, oh well, repeating yourself, yeah. by all means, create reusable classes that you that you need to reuse. However, I think you'd be surprised on like, say, you're writing a bunch of queries how each place generally needs to fetch data a very unique way. I, I guess I'd say that I think you'd be surprised on how many unique places that you need to fetch data. And then those are self-contained within that particular feature or that handler.
2: Yeah, I can see that. So okay. how would
3: someone get started then
1: if um, if if I wanted to, to learn more about this um, pattern or
3: start to implement it? I'm trying not to give myself self-promotion here, but... <laughs>
2: um, go ahead. Go for it. Hey.
3: Um, so <laughs> on my blog... Is- On my blog, codeopinion.com, I have just a ton of stuff on this. And then I have some talks that I've done at different conferences about it. Pretty much what we're talking about now, for the most part. And as well as Jimmy Bogard has a bunch of talks that talk about vertical slices. And, And when we're talking about CQRS and just the simplicity of commands and queries, and just it being that simple, kind of fitting into this mode, he has... Again, his blog likely, as well as he's made, had um, various talks that he's done that are right in line with what we're talking about now. So those would those are probably the two easiest things to pick up on. Just head over to YouTube and probably search for, yeah, Jimmy's name or my name. Nice. Or look at his library, Mediator, because it's, it's got really simplistic examples that it, it'll show exactly how this is implemented.
0: Okay, so do we have time to uh, cover event sourcing? That's another topic we're thinking about. I
3: think it's a segue. So where we've been doing this, right, or what we've been talking about is, okay, it's really simple. There's just command objects, query objects, potentially. You're just separating reads and writes. I think where, to start the beginning, why it seems so confusing is because that's where people generally, once they start getting a hang of this and how this works, it naturally starts going down this path of where people have gone before and that heads into event sourcing for whatever reason. You don't need CQRS to event source and you don't need event sourcing to use CQRS, but the kind of a lot of the discussions end up being both a lot of times. So when I was talking about that diagram that has a command coming in and maybe it references like a domain model in the sense of maybe like an aggregate root in this in a domain driven design sense and then that gets passed down to some message bus and all this stuff that then creates an event and an event store and this whole whack load of stuff, that's where people end up landing at some point, not necessarily for implementation for real, but just for as you're kind of learning and you can see what the possibilities are once you started from this very simplistic CQRS idea of separation of reads and writes. It kind of opens up the door to a lot of things, and event sourcing is one of them. So when people are talking about event sourcing, although I think that's getting a little confusing now too, (laughs) it is really about using a series of facts that represent state. So instead of representing state in a database as, say, a table or a document store with an object or a row that says, this is what this is now. Instead, you represent it by a series of events. So things that have actually happened in the system. So the Typical example people use is with a a bank account. So my analogy to this is if you go to your bank's website and you look at your balance for whatever account, you have some number there. I generally ask, do you think that's how the bank stores your balance is they just have a balance? Like you make a transaction, you update some record (laughs) in some uh, database saying, oh, this is your new balance. You just, you remove $5. So this is your new balance. No, you really, you're your balance is a projection. It's basically a, it's taking all the withdrawals and deposits. And that's where your. are that's how you got to where you are right now, right? If you ever wanted to see on your bank statement, where was I on January 1st, 2020, all you'd have to do is start from when the bank account was opened and then basically go through all the transactions to that point in time. And that's your state as of that time. Right, so it's just using things that have happened as fact, like the the occurred for sure, the occurred to basically build up the state that you want it to look like. So that is it in a nutshell, I guess. Is just I'm 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 simplifying, I guess, maybe how you implement it, but that's what it is. It's just using events.
2: So using CQRS and event sourcing, how has it changed you as a developer? What What do you think are the the benefits that you've learned from using? Because you've been using it for several years,
0: right?
3: I would think it goes back to thinking about less about CRUD. I think you're thinking more about actual, the intent of what somebody's actually trying to do in the system and what the outcome of them performing that action is in real world terms. Right. So when I use again, like in transportation, when there's an event, for example, would be a pickup. Like somebody's picking up the freight at the warehouse to go deliver it to your house, right? Like that the pickup is the command. You know, shipment picked up, something past tense, something that's happened, that would be the event. Arrival, maybe they're arriving at my house to deliver. Arrive is the command. Arrived is the event that's that's happened. The delivery is the command. That's the intent, what they're trying to do, It's the driver's trying to do. They drop it off. They take that picture that you get. That fired the event. When they said submit, that's meant that submit command. But once they actually saved that event, that event was, it was delivered, right? So all these series of events are things that actually happen. It's not like you have one record in a database that has all these date time columns. There's a lot more that goes with it and there's a lot of information that you can derive from it if you're just if you're storing actual occurrences of things that have actually happened
2: it flips things on its head because we're right we're so used to thinking of PRUD yeah. Right? And, and how you manage that,
3: it's a bit of a shift. It is, <laughs> for sure it is. And there's technical things there because that's where, like where once you start getting into CQRS and why it fits with event sourcing, or I should say event sourcing fits really well with CQRS sometimes too, is that the problem is if, you, if you're just using your events to get to current state, that means that every time you need to get current state, you have to get all those events and essentially replay them to get to where you are. So how exactly do you write a report? Like that would be a nightmare, right? (laughs) So that's where CGRS plays in, is that when you have events, certain events occur, you would have other things that will deal with those events that will persist that in a database, for example, um, to keep up with current state. So like we said, like with your bank account, yes, there probably is a database with your current balance in it. That's constantly getting updated when transactions occur. But the point of truth isn't that database. It's actually the series of events. So what that allows you to do, though, is let's say that you wanted to show on the screen very quickly and easily a like your current balance, and maybe there's some built-in report to your bank account. mine doesn't, but it'd be awesome if it did, that showed maybe like a trending graph of what your account balance is, maybe over the last month. Well, that actually be really easy for them to constantly persist, like your events, your transactions, but then every so often when you know, I mean a certain event occurs just creating different records by month of what your balance is at that time like if it looks and oh we've hit a new month we haven't hit that record yet what's the balance persist it you know what i mean so you yeah. you kind of yeah. have this read model hence the read part of CQRS where you're dealing with this what people call a projection it's it's taking all your events and turning it into a particular state that you want to look at so
1: your, project, your projection is kind of like a view like through a account balance but then like um your your source of truth is your with all your transactions. Correct. And you can create like a a number of different views. So let's say there's another business requirement to show, I don't know, all your, uh, what your balance was, you know, in a previous month or whatever. You can just do that just by using the events. Yeah. Would that be
3: accurate? Yeah. So if you have like, say you never recorded that in that fashion, you can then take all your existing events and write new code that will pile through them basically. And this, depending on how many you have, this could take quite a while, but you could kind of make that new Mm -hmm. view of whatever the new requirement is, whatever piece of data that you want to show now that you, you need to calculate through as the transactions are happening. Um, and you kind of get there to show it the way you want to show it now. They always, the always example of this is if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, well, we want this information, you implement the change, and then it's always going forward. If you're always recording events, you can always go back in time, right? It's not from set point of your change. It's always going forward to a certain degree. Right. If you if there's data that you need to record an event that you don't have, well, that's kind of a problem. But but generally, yeah, it's it allows you to kind of think of the data in different ways later.
1: I think it's good. It's kind of a good philosophy that if you have all the data separated like that, you can. You can always do something with it, you know. Like, it. I guess it makes it, it makes it means uh, satisfying any future requirements a lot easier. It
3: does, but it's at a trade off, right? Because, and I think the biggest one, like versioning events, is a whole separate topic in how you want to mm. version these things. Because once you've kind of defined an event and you stored it, and you need to likely look at it in the future, um, you need to have code that always handles that. You know, I mean, that structure of that event it can't go away, or you have okay. to write kind of backwards compatible code to deal with it, Mm. right? So it's not just all roses, (laughs) right? There's still (laughs) a lot of stuff that comes with it. And like you mentioned with just thinking about commands and intent, going from a model of persisting events versus always persisting current state in a database is Mm. a giant leap Mm. for a lot of developers. I think it depends on the developer and what they're used to and maybe what types of applications that they've worked in. Because if you are, I always say, people always ask, well, what's the domains that like event sourcing fits best for? Because I don't think personally, there's varying opinions on this. Mine is, I don't think it necessarily has to live everywhere. We don't, I don't do it everywhere in our application. We do it in one very specific place, but I think the place it fits best in is things that naturally seem to be time series. Like I was mentioning with a delivery, like a shipment, right? There's a a set of things that happen that, you would talk about it that way. So it just seems natural that you would record it that way. Same thing when we're talking about a bank account transactions. There's just, you would think of it that way naturally. When I first got into event sourcing at the time, kind of one of my mentors was a, an accountant. And I was explaining to the accountant what I was starting to learn. And he looked at me with the most puzzled look as if like, how are you just figuring this out? Like, that's how, <laughs> that's how it should always work, right. right? Because that to him in his world... <laughs> That's just how everything works. And the idea of just recording current state was like, what? That doesn't make any sense. So I think it depends kind of maybe the apps you've lived in. and But yeah, if you're just used to kind of crud, it's it's definitely a leap.
0: So is this anything uh, that's similar to like blockchain?
3: So at a very low level, a piece of it, yes, because you're talking about recording state that is immutable. Uh, mm. The rest of it, no, because there's no like consensus. There's no distributed <laughs> right, right, aspect right. to it at, yeah. at its heart. It's really just about recording state that's immutable, or like events, right. I guess right. that are the Events state over time. New. Yeah, yeah, and so. those are immutable. Yeah, you're not right. You're not going back and changing an event like it's happened, right. like your like your bank statement. You know your balance. Yeah, you don't <laughs> you don't go in there and change a, a transaction. Yeah, you basically have. But it brings up a point: is that it's that's actually another difficulty is when you unimaginably, who writes bugs? Nobody, uh, right? <laughs> do you create some sort of bug where you do need to go back and fix an issue? Is that then it's not just writing an update statement to fix a record in a database, it is writing some code that has some compensating event, right? Just like you would have with a bank error. I mean, there's a, like if you if you deposit a hundred dollars or the deposit and the fat finger the amount and you really meant to deposit ninety whatever the case may be. Generally, what they'll do is a full reversal, right? They'll take back out the hundred and then add the ninety. So usually if that's a whole other issue. Is like it seems really easy when you have issues right now with data. Oh, I just go in and fix the data in the database. That's the end of it. With event sourcing, there's a whole other set of ways you do that, and it doesn't necessarily seem as easy. So in that case, yeah. you would literally just have two separate events, wouldn't it, to to do that? You wouldn't be able to go back to the the old event and change it. No, you're not changing that old event. You're basically, yeah, you're having to create a new event that is compensating, kind of reversing what that original event was that was done in error or whatever the case may be. Sounds like a lot of fun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So are there situations, uh, scenarios where, you know, you wouldn't want to use CQRS or event sourcing?
3: I think if you're, that's a good question because for me, it's been, I can only relate to my own experiences where I've done it in places that in hindsight now were. It probably made it more difficult than it was for those the exact reasons that I mentioned, like events changing over time, like needing to kind of version them over time, and the complications that those brought. I think the the thing that the place is not to do it, I guess, would say on how well the first the team is in the, in the idea in general. Maybe it's not something you want to tackle on something super critical at first because it is a big leap.
0: It could also violate the the KISS principle too. You know, something is just really simple. You don't first sure. implement CQRS.
3: Having said that, though, right, it's very difficult to, I guess, sometimes when you, it's the hammer problem, right? When you kind of learn it, you're like, I just want to do this everywhere. And I was guilty of it for sure initially. I think everybody is when you kind of learn something new. But then at the same time, it's if you don't, unfortunately, I kind of feel like if you don't do it wrong, you're not going to know where to do it right. Mm -hmm. That's why... I guess me saying this, it it probably won't hit home to a lot of people and there's probably a ton of other use cases. But for me, it's always been where things are naturally time series has always been the easy fit where things are occurring and people in the business talk about it that way. Like these are things that happen. Like they're, they're solid points in time.
0: Great. Great. Anybody have some final questions? Yeah, I've, I've got a lot to, um, to think about, right? Yeah. How how, how am
3: I going to sell this to the other developers
2: on the team?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, start small,
4: <laughs> right? All right. So, if
0: there's no other questions, I guess we should move on to picks.
4: Are you building applications with Vue.js? Then you need to check out the Views on Vue podcast. Every week, we bring in a guest panelist from the Vue community and talk about the interesting things being built with Vue or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonvue.com. Let
0: me go first, since I, you guys are stealing if you know,
4: <laughs> if I if I let you
0: go before me, so. <laughs> So <laughs> just this week, I was, I was watching uh, a new demo of the Unreal 5 engine. And they, it was just mind-blowing what they were doing on this demo. It was off of a PS5, so it's not something you can actually you know, use on your machine yet. But uh, they were just showing modeling and lighting and effects off of billions of hmm. triangles within scenes. And, you know, like real-time things. So uh, the little demo is kind of this person going through a caved environment and climbing up a wall and seeing all these things in that environment. So mm-hmm. it's not that long, but uh, do check it out. Good all thing. right, Caleb, what's your pick? My pick this week has to do with Mark
2: Miller, my, my good friend from Twitch. Mr. Codrush. Yes, Mr. Cogrush I am enjoying his Twitch streams. There's a lot of fun and games going on. But his Twitch stream, he's actually building an application that he's using in in another stream, another context. It's um, they're doing a D and D campaign on Twitch and they're called dragon humpers. It's, it's not, it's adult content, right? It's not, it's That's, not necessarily kid-friendly. Sounds like Mark. <laughs> right. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? But um, I've, I've caught a couple of them and it's, it's funny. Sometimes they actually dress up in costume. They, they really get into it. So if you get a chance to check it out, it's, it's, uh, it's fun. Nice. All right, why? What's your pick?
1: Yeah, i will definitely have to check out that Dragon Humble thing, but I'll love <laughs> this. Um so my pick this week is it's it's, it's not a Switch game actually. It's called uh, Ring Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's called Ring Fit Adventure. So Heck yeah. it's actually yeah, you got it? Yeah, it's actually really yeah. um it's actually really hard to find the copy. You might actually have struggle to find it if you're wherever you are. But in Australia it's actually quite hard, but I managed to get a copy, but it's like a it's like an adventure game where you have this like you just got to go around fighting monsters and things with this um, by doing a series of exercises with this like ring that comes to the game. Um, and yeah, I've been kind of using it every day while I'm working from home. You no, know? so and it's just a good way for me to just motivate myself to to do exercise.
2: My son Gideon and I we actually played Ring Fit Adventure this morning. Where oh, right yeah. up to like our fourth battle with Dragax or whatever his name is. He's yeah, a big yeah. purple demon.
1: Bodybuilding. yeah it's 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 good stuff it's good i mean, you actually get pretty sweaty and
3: so
0: yeah all right derek uh do you have something that you want to let our listeners know about that you're interested in lately
3: so i uh throughout the week i always kind of just tag links to myself with stuff that i pay attention to so i'm stealing one from my list which is super techy still or software related. But that's cool. with all the COVID stuff going, there's, I mean, so many conferences that unfortunately have to do whatever they need to do to, because obviously they're likely not having it in person. But Build Stuff is a conference that has been doing all these e-meetups and then just having speakers kind of do it online. They post it on YouTube. And so check out the Build Stuff YouTube channel. They have one that was, I don't know how recent it is. I think it's maybe like this past week with Sam Newman. And he is talking about coupling, cohesion, microservices, and it's really cool. So it definitely is apropos since what we're talking about a little bit today. So I always enjoy his content and it's pretty cool to see something like Build Stuff uh, doing this online.
0: Very cool. And uh, Microsoft Build is next week as we record this. So if anybody is not registered for that, jump on there, it's free. So I'm talking about the panelists, not the listeners, because it's gonna be too late. <laughs> All right. Hopefully, they had a good time. At uh, build everybody that's listening out there. So, Derek, uh, if one of people want to get in touch with you, uh, you mentioned your blog. Is there um, you're on Twitch or or, or Twitter? Or?
3: Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Code Opinion. That's the Codeopinion.com is my blog. Code opinion on Twitch. However, I do stream to it, but I also stream it to YouTube, which is really where most of the other content is that I kind of do separately that is edited. So uh, probably YouTube.
0: Great. And if any one of our listeners want to get in touch with me or the show, they can reach out to me on Twitter. I am at Superhero. Thanks, Derek, for spending the time with us today. Really like yeah, it. Yeah,
2: thank you. Appreciate it yeah, so much.
0: All right. All right. We'll catch everybody next time on the the next edition of Adventures in .NET.
4: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.